my ego was gone. It was swimming in a pool of blood. That part of me died that day. I'm Jill Bolte-Taylor, and I'm a trained neuroanatomist, and now I am a book author, a public speaker. I am anything about the beauty of this brain and how do we help ourselves better understand this tool inside of our head and how we can get it to do what we want it to do. When we wanted to explore the mindset of recovery, there was only one person I wanted to speak to who I knew could convey the true power challenge and hope of healing. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor is a force of nature. If you've watched her TED Talk, and by now over 28 million people have, you'll know that she is a brilliant neuroscientist who at age 37 and at the start of her Harvard career suffered a devastating stroke due to a brain hemorrhage. Her incredible story of recovery was based on adopting a new mindset, that of transformation and embracing the death of who she used to be as a rebirth. I'm Caroline moderesi Tirani, and this is American Metamorphosis. I think that the biggest mistake that people tend to make in a state of recovery is to view themselves as less than. They're not less than they were before. They're simply different. So on the morning of, of December 10, 1996, I woke up and I, I was having a pounding pain behind my left eye. And over the course of four hours, I watched my own brain circuit by circuit go offline. Mm. So I lost my ability to speak. I gained paralysis in half my body. Uh, I lost the physical boundaries of where do I begin and where do I end. And through the eyes of a neuroanatomist, this was absolutely fascinating. But as I'm doing it, I'm literally mapping my own brain and trying to figure out, okay, well, that circuit's offline, that circuit's offline. Offline. I think that it, to, to anybody listening, it must have been terrifying or one imagines it must have been terrifying. You know more than anybody that, well, if this is going offline, the blood is now here. How did it feel in these moments? What emotions were you feeling? Fortunately for me, I I found I became curious. I did not move into fear. Hmm. Now, I probably would have gotten help sooner rather than later if I wasn't so curious. A normal person would have probably walked out into the street and flagged down help and said, call me an ambulance before they became so disabled. Jill did eventually call for help and she survived. But there was something else happening simultaneous with the stroke. As Jill's left brain, which is the side responsible for linear analytical thinking, as that shut down, she found herself existing solely in the right hemisphere. That's the one we usually associate with creativity and sensory experiences. Ironically, she describes this time as a period of bliss. Over that course of, of four hours, I would, I would waft out into this experience of the present moment experience because my right hemisphere was absolutely fine. The bl blood was contained in that tissue of that, that left hemisphere. And in the present moment, one, there is no I, the individual. There is no language. There's no connection to a past or a future. All there is is right here, right now, what is in front of me. And that felt like an experience of bliss 
blissful euphoria. It was beautiful there. I blended into uh, the atoms and the molecules of the universe. I, I am an energy ball that blends with all the energy around me. And I didn't have that left brain circuitry that says, no, here I am. This is where I begin and end. I'm inside of this body. I have an identity. I have language. I'm trying to call something outside of myself for help. So it was a fascinating experience. Whatever euphoria Jill glimpsed that day, it still seems to glow from within her. She laughs easily and without hesitation, but that comfort was hard earned. After the stroke, Jill spent the next eight years in active recovery. I was very blessed to have my mother uh, I really function as my teacher and my guide. We turned off the TV. We turned off the radio. We turned off all noise coming in from the external world. Uh, I did a lot of sleeping and the sleep was balanced with uh, me learning. And I essentially went back to, to school as an infant. And as a neuroanatomist, I knew that I had had these abilities, like the ability to know where do I begin and where I end. I know that because there's a group of cells in my left hemisphere. So I had to re-engage those cells. I knew that I had had language before. So that was uh, complex circuitry. I had to re, uh, I had to re-engage those circuits. And I recognized that girl that I had been and we grieved the loss of her, but it was never my goal to go back and be that because if that circuitry was offline, I mean, she was she was climbing the Harvard ladder, you know, she was hot stuff. And it was like, no, I could never assume that that was my ultimate goal when I couldn't walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. I mean, I was, I was not that person anymore. So I was simply thrilled I did not die that day. I did not die that day. And because I was still alive, I had the capacity to begin at scratch. And I would build a new life. I would have new interests. I would wear new colors. I would I would be completely different. What I think is so interesting is when you were in your recovery mindset, you weren't trying to get back to who you had been, which I think is an instinct for certainly loved ones around you. I mean, I don't want to speak for your mother, but you know, myself as, um, as, as the daughter of somebody who's had a stroke, there's definitely this, there's definitely this sense of like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, can you get back to, um, the way you've been? And what I find fascinating is that that is not what, <clears throat> so sorry. <laughs> Take your time. This is this is hardcore, you know, this is real. What I find deeply profound is that you were not trying to get back to who you were, which is something I think loved ones try and sort of do. They put that on a person who's had that kind of injury. And instead, you treated your road to recovery and your recovery mindset as something that was much more exploratory as something that was much more discovery based and that it wasn't rooted in this past, but you were much more focused on the future and who can I be? And I just, I just love you to sort of delve into that a little bit and how conscious that was for you. And looking back, maybe how, how, you know, how you view that lens and that mindset you adopted. You know, um, it's, first of all, thank you for sharing. Um, 
I was very blessed that my mother understood that that the goal was not for, you know, her Harvard doctor daughter to return to being a Harvard doctor. And we allowed ourselves as a family to grieve the loss of who that character was so that we could completely embrace who am I going to be now? And yet there were still skills that I needed. I, this new me needed to recover and I needed, uh, I needed language. Uh, numbers were going to be helpful. Um, in order for me to appear like a normal human being, I was going to have to have boundaries, physical boundaries of awareness. Hmm. And that's how we function as a society. So in order for me to be perceived at the level of societal norm, I had to get enough skill sets back. But the goal was never for me to become whom I had been. And I I personally, I thought that cutting up dead things was like disgusting. It's like, I can't believe I used to do that. It's so I mean, funny. It's almost like thinking about your teenage self and being like, ew, I was into that, dude. Like, what was it? <laughs> Exactly. Um, I mean, it was like, wow, I was like, no way. So, um, but it, I, I, I came back into this mindset of how absolutely beautiful it, it is, but I had to adapt to that. So it just so happened that in order to survive again and, and get a job again and make an income again, I got paid to do what I used to do. So I ended up coming back into the brain and into neuroscience and, and I love it. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the creative content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we are exploring different mindsets, and we're unpacking the science behind not just how, but why we think and act the way we do. Tapping into these insights can empower us to regain a sense of control in today's uncertain times and help leaders inform and refine their decision-making. In this episode, we are talking about recovery, and not just in the sense of repair, but holistically about how we can move forward after a setback or a challenge. It's a vision that requires a mental reset and a shift towards something new, a metamorphosis. And that doesn't just mean in our personal lives, like Jill saying goodbye to her former self to emerge anew. Her story of resilience is awe-inspiring. But if there's one thing that Jill hopes it can teach others, it's not to look at her story in a silo. Because recovery plays out in social spaces, through cultural and political shifts, and even in boardrooms, where American businesses need to ditch the rearview mirror and look ahead. I love this question. Um, transformation to me is one of the most overused words in business. I would say transformations mean to change in composition or structure, which means there's a fundamental shift, not just incremental change. I'm Christy Elmer. I am a managing director and partner at BCG. I lead BCG's North America transformation practice and am the global topic leader for purpose, culture, change management, and leadership. I like to think of that as all things change. Christy isn't a neuroanatomist, but she and Jill share a goal of trying to get us to rethink recovery as more of a transformation than an attempt to get back to something that was lost. It's a really important point to start to say, recognize where we are and recognize that it, there is no going back. So a lot of the conversations I have very early on with my clients is, let's look at the art of the possible. We need to be at a place of thinking about where are we heading? 
And that might mean that we have to do things completely different. We are hardwired as human beings to avoid change. Mm. Our brains are actually wired to be looking for predictability. And the neuroscience studies that are out there, the evidence shows us that people are, you know, looking to sort of avoid new ways of working. They sort of default subconsciously to pre-wired habits from the past. Getting people to embrace change is hard enough but these days, there is an additional pressure to recover and transform constantly, or what Christie calls an always-on mindset. So what we're seeing, you know, if you look historically over transformations, they used to be one-time events. So there was a need for a financial performance change very quickly or something where a certain area of the business needed to turn around or a new system that had to be in place. When we look at today's environment with the level of uncertainty across financial metrics, if we look at the geopolitical environment, it's very tough operating in the business world today. On top of that, you have increasing demands from shareholders to speed up delivery, boards actually asking companies to transform faster. Mm. So you look at all of these things together and say the environment's pretty tough. What we're seeing companies say is we actually need to be always on. And we can no longer afford these one-time sort of events. We need to be thinking more about how we build this muscle of always-on transformation. Christy says that this non-stop urgency has led to an 86% rise in demand for chief transformation officers in just the last few years. So what does it mean to be a chief transformation officer? What does it mean to sort of be tasked essentially with dealing with some of the most challenging and also at the same time rewarding aspects of a company. So the chief transformation officer role is sort of a newer role in the C-suite. And it comes with, as you mentioned, all the challenge of needing to orchestrate a entire organization to drive change, but also to think about how are you building the systems and the capabilities and upskilling the organization at the same time. And then also thinking about how you're role modeling the new behaviors of the organization. So it is a very deep role. It's very all-encompassing, but um, I would say very rewarding as you think about the ability to sort of move an organization forward, but not just move it forward and delivering results, but also the ability to actually enable the organization to be better versions of themselves, both individually and as teams. Do people underestimate the challenge of transformation in your experience? Yes. In fact, in 60 years of studying transformations, the results aren't really changing. 30% of transformations are successful in delivering the results they set out to, to achieve. And the interesting part is we actually know what makes those 30% successful. And it is the what we would call the soft stuff. It is about how are you enabling the organization? How are you communicating? Is it clear what you need from them from a behavior or culture shift perspective? But we often find that's the stuff that organizations sort of put to the side or focus on for a while and then really sort of over-focus on results. And by, ne by definition, transformations are hard. This is about fundamentally asking hundreds of people, maybe thousands, to act differently. And that can be a tall order. From reshaping a company after bankruptcy to a minor reorg, well, people often resistant to change and motivating people to act differently requires an understanding of what makes them tick at an individual level. That's something that Christy learned early on in her career. 
My first job out of college was actually working at Delta Airlines while they were in bankruptcy. And so my first taste of the corporate world was in transformation and as an employee. And for me, that was really groundbreaking and understanding what it feels like to to feel the change, you know, sort of from an employee on the ground perspective. The understanding each other, having the empathy to understand where someone's coming from is critical in a transformation. And it's critical to really driving sustained change because if we can understand different perspectives, our ability to come to better outcomes, to deliver results, to deliver change is exponentially better. Some businesses are clearly starting to get it, as seen by the rise of chief transformation officers and companies bringing in outside experts to help. Well, Jill is one of those experts. After the stroke and her dazzling TED talk, she's been consulting with companies to help them gain a deeper knowledge of how our brains work. I've been traveling for the last 15 years working with groups of companies. And I think that, that you know, the real development, and the real growth for transformation is recognizing the value of all members of each team and seeing how do we create that, that left brain uh, trajectory of what we want the, the organization to be based on what is the creative process and how do we bring value and we really equalize because the way I see a business is it's like a big brain. And if business is a big brain, well, then it stands to reason that understanding better the many brains that make up a company will only help to strengthen that organization. That's part of what Jill sets out to do in her latest book, Whole Brain Living. What whole brain living does is it helps us recognize at a neuroanatomical level, we have two modules of cells that are emotional, one in each hemisphere. We have two modules of cells that are thinking, one in each hemisphere. So if we have two emotional modules and two thinking modules in our brains, well then as Jill puts it, we each have four characters and their values, their motivations, their purpose are all distinct. I call them character one, two, three, and four. And I encourage people to give each of this part of you a name because it's a part of you. It's a whole personality. If you want to use, be able to use all your fingers, you want to be able to use all your brain, get to know these different parts of your brain. So character one is that left thinking tissue inside of our left hemisphere. And it's the higher cerebral cortex and it has language. It is our ability to communicate with the external world. There's an ego center in there that says, I am an individual. It likes to be the boss. Um, it, so, so this is our A-type personality that tends to go to work. For me, I call mine Helen, Helen on wheels. She gets it done. Where does she go? She, you know, she gets me on time. She's punctual. She's good at controlling time. So she's good at all these paperwork and the, you know, all of that. Um, and that's a part of who we are. I love that you, the anthropomorphizing of the of, uh, of the character. I think it's so great. And I can imagine that Helen wears a, a really no-nonsense, like Anne Klein kind of attire. <laughs> like... Character two, says Jill carries our emotional past, trauma, childhood belief systems, and more, where judgment can manifest. Character three is our emotional present. It's the playful, creative, and entrepreneurial side of us that just wants to have fun. Character four is where Jill comes back to transformation. This is the hyper-present part of our right-thinking brain. But unlike dear Helen and her bossy tendencies, 
This fourth space is dedicated to presentness as a connection to the universe. It's that big ball of energy feeling that Jill described before. When people meditate or they pray or they repeat a mantra uh, or they do yoga uh, or they they do whatever tools they choose in order to find that experience of peaceful, blissful euphoria, they're really on uh, in search of how do I find my four. These four characters can explain a lot about why we can feel conflicted and they highlight another key distinction that Jill wants us to understand, that as humans, we are feeling creatures who think not thinking creatures who feel. The information that streams into our brains first passes through our emotional circuits, our characters two and three, before it gets to the thinking ones. This is all fascinating, Jill. If we can kind of have this better understanding of our whole brain, if we can adopt this whole brain thinking, how can that better help us with recovering from setbacks, tackling problems? What whole brain living does is it allows us to differentiate these different parts of who we are so that we have the power then to choose in any moment which one do we want to embody or which one are we embodying. And if we're in relationship with another person, if I there's four of me in here and four characters in all of us, then in every single relationship, there's eight different characters trying to interact with one another. It's fascinating. It's interesting. It's beautiful. And so if I'm in my character one and I'm busy and I'm getting things done and, and you and I are on a committee and we're trying to work together in order to get something done, but you come in and you're very upset. You're in your character two and you're upset about something that happened and da, 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 and now I can look at you and I can recognize and I say, oh my gosh, sweet girl, you're in your little character too. What do you need? How can I support you? So when we better understand what's going on in these four characters, then we learn how to interact with one another. The better we know and understand ourselves and each other, the more successfully we can take on any change, no matter how challenging. This is why Christy Elmer from BCG says emotional intelligence is so critical for business leaders today. EQ helps them to take stock of how the concept of transformation might feel to the rest of the team, whether it's fulfilling to some or scary to others. EQ is one of the the skills I identify as probably most important for a transformation leader because as we think about any high level of change, you're dealing with hundreds to thousands of people. And so understanding where they are and how you do that at scale is critical, which means really important to be thinking about all the levers you can pull, being very in tune to your EQ to make sure that you're helping others and helping them become the best that they can throughout. Ultimately, there are some tough days. And so if we don't come at it as empathy and understanding being part of the transformation, it will not be a great experience and we will lose people. And as we think about our behavioral science lab at BCG, ultimately what we're trying to get at is how do we understand where that person's at so that we can nudge them in a positive way. Adopting an approach that's not dissimilar to Jill's work in the neuroanatomy space, Christy and her team at the BCG Behavioral Science Lab draw on neuroscience, psychology, and behavioral economics to get leaders to overcome aversion to change. A big part of that is frequently measuring the emotional temperature of an organization to support transformation. 
And in the behavioral science lab, what is it that you're doing, uh, you know, on a, on a week to week basis? How are you checking in? So we have a, um, a tool that we are pulse checking about 12 different emotions because we know that those emotions are distinctly different and that you can feel them at any given time. There's about six, seven questions, and then we begin to plot that data. And so we can see different trends over time and really understand someone's capacity. So what is their capacity to take on change? Where is their cognitive load? But then also, what is their confidence? Because what we do see is change fatigue and burnout are really driven by a lack of capacity, but also a lack of confidence. You might have given me a task that I don't feel confident I can finish, or I don't feel confident I have the skills. So therefore, I actually feel, you know, anxious or upset, but I'm not going to articulate that. So our ability to actually map that and figure out there are themes going on through certain parts of the organization, or there's individuals that are struggling, we can create interventions that allow the leadership team of those clients to actually help those people. So there might be a temporary change, and that's something you could do as an intervention, but typically it is, let's look at your workload. Are there things that we can change? There might be something going on at home that has changed in the last few months that's making it harder for you to take your normal workload. So let's have that conversation. There are things such as someone just not feeling appreciated. So they've working really hard, but the, the, you know, the question that we might ask is, have you been recognized for the work that you're doing? And so the intervention might be a simple call and a thank you from you know, the senior most leadership team. So it's it's small interventions that really make people feel that you care about them and that you recognize what they're doing. Those brief moments of recognition and those small adjustments can have enormous impact on an organisation and the people who bring it to life, especially when they're dealing with a world of always-on change. Recently, we've had the highest level of global fatigue actually reported. So 43% of desk workers in the United States, for example, are reporting burnout. So as you look at an organization and say, let's transform, let's take on change, you've got an organization that may say, I see the potential, but I, I don't know that I can get there. So how do, you, how do you deal with that? And I think it goes back to having a very clear purpose and the why behind it. I think organizations need to focus more on that, but then also reemphasize the positive elements. So again, what people are going to get from this kind of change. So making sure it's not just about doing more or delivering better results. It is we are focusing on how we fundamentally shift to make things easier to work, better ways of working, but then through a transformation you're personally going to have an opportunity to team differently, to team better, to have more personal success. And I think you can get people more excited about that as we think about embarking on a transformation, given the environment that we find ourselves in. Transformation isn't a cakewalk, especially when it's forced upon us by a setback. And getting a large group of people with their disparate emotions and fears and ambitions to change through recovery, well, that's even harder. And while not all of us will face a major brain injury, we will all face setbacks and loss. But Jill's story provides the inspiration to tackle it head on and to see that change opens up a whole new world of possibilities. You know, the only consistent thing about life is it is going to change. My cells of my brain, as I age, 
they're going to change. Uh, I started stone carving when I was 55. I have a whole new skill set now, and my brain cells have shifted in order to, you know, do this new skill set. So how is that any different? That is the, the change in the growth that I have chosen. Okay, well, then I had a stroke. So I had change happen that I didn't choose. Um, what do I do with that? You know, again, it's not the hand you're dealt. It's how do you play the hand you're dealt? And I think that for most of us, it's how do we stay out of the woe is me? And so many of us are spending time in the past and time in the future and I don't look like now what I wanted to look like because I had a stroke and, you know, I should have been a pinnacle at Harvard by now. Well, you know, a lot of my friends are those people. I love them. I'm glad that that was their future. But this has been my new journey. And if I'm open to the possibility of what is and not bemoaning what was not or is not, that is the growth of the new possibility. Being open to those new possibilities can be deeply personal, or as Christie says, allow business leaders to inspire an entire generation. The stakes are high and this is hard, but these are sort of once, maybe twice in a career type opportunities to really make a mark on how you're going to affect the lives of the current employees and how you're actually setting up the success of the future generations. When you look at this and say, my team is going to come out smarter, stronger, they're going to work better together, and they're going to have more opportunities. There isn't a leader alive that I know that says, I don't want that. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. We really hope that this episode resonated with you. Join us next week when we hear from an Olympian hero about what it truly takes to be composed.